Well, good morning to all of you. Welcome to Citizens. My name is CJ. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Um, and as we gather this morning, we participate in a divine experiment of a radical community called the church. In God's plan for human history, his intention was for men and women, young and old, rich and poor, all races and ethnicities, people from different wealth and privilege, that, he, that we would come together as one people, united only by our shared faith and our shared allegiance to a man named Jesus, who lived 2,000 years ago, claimed to be God, died, rose from the dead, and then assembled this group of followers that he called the church. And I call it a, a divine experiment because experiments are both exciting and dangerous at the same time, are they not? For many of us, the church is our last hope of finding a place to call home. It's our last hope of belonging to a people. It's our last hope that our true, naked, often ugly self might be welcomed by God and his people. It's an enormous risk that we're taking. Henri Nouwen, the late Dutch Catholic priest, left his prestigious life as a professor at Harvard Divinity School to join a home for those with intellectual disabilities, a place called L'Arche, where he spent the last 10 years of his life. In his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, he says this about the dangerous experiment of community. He says, life in community does not keep the darkness away. To the contrary, it seems that the light that attracted me to L'Arche also made me conscious of the darkness in myself. Jealousy, anger, the feeling of being rejected or neglected, the sense of not truly belonging, all of these emerged in the context of a community striving for a life of forgiveness, reconciliation, and healing. Community life has opened me up to the real spiritual combat, the struggle to keep moving toward the light precisely when the darkness is so real. There is little romanticism to community life. There is the constant need to keep stepping out of the engulfing darkness onto the platform of the Father's embrace. The bright light of the community experiment brings tremendous excitement, but the darkness it reveals in me sometimes causes me to shudder. So I wanna thank you for being here this morning, for continuing to participate in this exciting and dangerous thing called the church. There are so many other places you could be, but you are here. And I pray that Jesus would speak to us all this morning through his word, words that have endured for these 2,000 years and are as re relevant today as ever. This morning's parable in Luke 15 is my favorite in all the Bible. If I was stuck on a desert island, I would take Coldplay's Parachutes record, a bottle of yellow chartreuse, and Luke chapter 15, okay? I could survive on those three things. My reason for this is best stated by Tim Keller in his book, Prodigal God. 
He says this, If the teaching of Jesus is likened to a lake, this famous parable of the prodigal son would be one of the clearest spots where we can see all the way to the bottom. I've spent my whole life floating on the lake of Christ's teaching, but this is my favorite spot on the lake. The air is still, the sun is overhead. When I need the gospel, I find it here, or rather, it comes and finds me. There's no way for me to do justice to Luke chapter 15 in just 45 minutes, and so I want to commend two books to you. Henri Nouwen's book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, and Prodigal God by Tim Keller. These two books have radically changed my life, and I cannot recommend them highly enough to you. Here's the exhortation I believe the Spirit wants to bring to us this morning as we look at Luke 15 together. Do not reject the feast of the Father's embrace. That is, that is God's message to you and I this morning. That we would not reject the feast of the Father's embrace. Let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll dive in. Jesus, we come hungry and thirsty. We come tired. We spend our lives looking for a home in some distant country. Our self-salvation experiments have all gone badly. And so we need you to save us, Jesus. We need you to forgive us and heal us. We need you to redeem us and welcome us home. Holy Spirit, I ask you to rest your hands on the body, on the shoulders of every person present this morning. May we feel your embrace in the absence of the embrace of one another. May we feel your embrace today. Help us to join the feast of your embrace this morning. It's your name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. If you read through Luke's gospel, we've been in Luke for a while now, you'll notice that feasts are all over the place. Uh, Luke writes about meals and feasts more than any other gospel writer. If you look at the gospels, you see that Jesus ate and drank so often and went to so many parties, he was accused of being a drunk and a glutton. If you were here last week with us in the park, we were in Luke 14, and Jesus tells us that he doesn't just want to be at any feast, but a a particular kind of feast. One that excludes our closest friends, political and religious allies, affinity groups, rich neighbors, and instead includes the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. I don't know how your liturgy group went last Sunday, but mine was pretty quiet, right? It's, it's hard to opt into Jesus' feast and out of our own feast that we've thrown. But Jesus, today we learn that Jesus doesn't just feast with the poor. There are other groups, additional groups, that Jesus shows preference to. Sinners and tax collectors. Let's jump into verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, the tax collectors and sinners 
were considered the scum of the earth in first century Israel. Okay? Tax collectors were Jews who had purchased the right from Rome to tax their brothers and sisters and then take advantage of them. Okay? So they're charging them more than they have to. People hated them. The term sinner here means a person devoted to wickedness. Okay, so these aren't just people that like are a little bit immoral. We're talking about like devoted to wickedness, thieves, murderers, liars, predators, abusers. Okay, Luke says that these people, the tax collectors and sinners, were drawing near to Jesus. The words draw near mean extreme closeness. Jesus was the only one these people had who would truly accept them despite their sin. Okay, so they're drawing near to him. And this totally angered the Pharisees. Okay, the Pharisees were the disciplined, morally upright religious leaders of their day. Okay, and so their, their complaint to Jesus is an expression of their disgust. These people don't deserve to have any rabbi eat with them, let alone a potential Messiah. And so they accuse Jesus of doing the wrong thing. And so as a response to this, okay, Jesus responds with three parables. One about a lost sheep, a parable about a lost coin, and third, a lost son. If you notice, in all three parables, something is lost, then it is found, and there is rejoicing and feasting as a result. Let's look at the first in verse 3. It says, so he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Picture a crowd full of nodding heads, okay? They're in an agrarian and pastoral society, okay? And so every man there could relate to this scenario. Every single one of them would have gone after their lost sheep, and so would we, okay? We have sophisticated technology that locates our $1,000 phone whenever we lose it, right? We can sound an alarm to help us find it, right? You lose your phone in your house, and you're like, dang it, I gotta go to iCloud.com and make that alarm sound, okay? Or if someone takes our phone, we can remotely wipe it clean to protect our data if we need to, okay? And so for a, for a shepherd present, a sheep represented an expensive asset worth finding. Jesus goes on. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp or, and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I'd lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Okay, so now the women whose primary task it was to manage their household, they're nodding along with Jesus. Yes, they understood the implications of a lost coin. Have you ever lost your purse, ladies? 
or that precious gift card someone gave you that you swore you put in your purse, but instead stuffed in the junk drawer in your kitchen. I need my Andy town. Okay. Or worse, your wedding ring. Okay. So women are saying, yes, I understand the loss is something valuable, something precious to me to search and find it. Then Jesus moves to the third and final parable in this sequence. Now, if Jesus followed suit with the sequence he had already been following, the listener might have expected Jesus to say something like this. Or what father, if he loses a son, does not leave his home and go after the one that is lost until he finds him? And when he has found his son, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the son I had lost. But Jesus doesn't do that. Why not? And he said, there was a man who had two sons. Notice immediately that the first two stories are about a single lost item, but Jesus here mentions two sons. The audience may have taken notice and leaned in with intrigue. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And the father divided his property between them. Now, if we had been present, we would have heard an audible gasp from the crowd. We can't comprehend the gravity of this moment because of how removed we are from ancient Near Eastern culture. This kind of thing simply wasn't done. Noan, in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, quotes a man named Kenneth Bailey. Kenneth Bailey spent 40 years teaching in Egypt, Lebanon, Palestine, Israel, and Cyprus. He says this, For over 15 years, I've been asking people of all walks of life, from Morocco to India and from Turkey to the Sudan, about the implication of a son's request for his inheritance while the father is still living. The conversation runs as follows. Has anyone ever made such a request in your village? Never. Could anyone ever make such a request? Impossible. If anyone ever did, what would happen? His father would beat him, of course. Why? The request means he wants his father to die. This was the worst offense Jesus hearers could imagine. Even the sinners and the tax collectors in the crowd who felt comfortable enough to draw near to Jesus would have thought this an unforgivable sin. And then it gets worse. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. This word reckless is the English word prodigal, which means recklessly spendthrift. The younger brother disowns his father, wishing him dead, and then lives a life of hedonism wasting all he had been given, okay? So Jesus is inviting the hearer in that moment and inviting us, first and foremost, to ask ourselves this morning how we too 
have left home, disowning God, who gave us everything and squandered our inheritance? How have we abandoned our home of being God's beloved children and said, no, I don't want you. I want to leave and go my own way. Henri Nouwen says this, leaving home is much more than a historical event bound to time and place. It is a denial of the spiritual reality that I belong to God with every part of my being, that God holds me safe in an eternal embrace, that I am indeed carved in the palms of God's hands and hidden in their shadows. Leaving home means ignoring the truth that God has fashioned me in secret, molded me in the depths of the earth, and knitted me together in my mother's womb. Leaving home is living as though I do not yet have a home and must look far and wide to find one. I think residency in a city like San Francisco, invites us to ask two questions. Where did you come from? And what are you hoping to find here? Right? All of us is allured by some picture of the good life that greatly entices us to leave our Heavenly Father's home and search after the gods of pleasure, of comfort, of approval, of achievement. We are all like the younger brother in some way. This parable is about the human condition, the Adamic rejection of God's perfect provision and presence in the garden. Are you at all like this younger brother? Jesus is suggesting that your rebellious attitude will always lead to poverty, loneliness, and hunger. Your recklessly spendthrift, prodigal living will catch up with you someday if it hasn't already. San Francisco is a city full of people who came looking for material wealth without consequences. And yet it hasn't made good on that promise. No one reflects further. He says, the world and its demons conspire to make me think about myself as worthless, useless, and negligible. And then, it, then it offers the balm of consumerism, and he says, creating spiritual expectation through material means. I, I think our prodigal life, our life of abandoning the Father for recklessly spendthrift living could be summarized in these words, seeking the spiritual through the material. And when he had spent everything, 
a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. He runs out of all of it. It doesn't, it doesn't provide what he sought after. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that con- country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. Jesus' Jewish audience understood how bad it was for him to live amongst pigs, a ceremonially unclean, even untouchable animal if you were Jewish. In Jewish law, you were cursed if you fed pigs. Hey, it's really bad. It's really bad. This man has wrecked his life. He's hungry for the food the pigs are eating, and yet the the owner of the pigs won't even give him any of the food. It's all for the pigs. These pigs are more valuable to me than you are. But then come these incredible words in verse 17. But when he came to himself, these are some of the most beautiful words spoken in this parable. This is the beginning of true repentance. The younger brother, while he is considering eating with the pigs, realizes that he didn't just betray and leave his father in his home. He betrayed and abandoned himself his own humanity. This is profound. He's, when he came to himself, see, when, when we sin, our sin is not just a rebellion against God, it's a rebellion against ourselves. This is what Paul means when he says that when a person sins, they sin against their own body. Our reckless living is self-inflicted exile from our own image-bearing body, mind, and heart. The greatest loss in our pursuit of of self-discovery and material wealth, a life without consequences, the greatest loss in that is of our true self. And so his first journey back is back to himself. He came to himself. And this repentance gives him clarity about what is possible he said, how many of my father's hired servants? He's, look, he's coming to his senses. How many of my father's, father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose, arose and came to his father. He's not even thinking about sonship. He's only thinking about humanity. Can my humanity just be restored? This is true repentance. He doesn't say, I'm sorry, but. He doesn't say, I will apologize to my dad but also let him know what was hard about growing up in his home. He doesn't say, 
Perhaps I can earn back my status as a son. What does he say? I am no longer worthy. My only request is that you let me serve. If I could just eat better than the pigs, that would be enough. Do you know how to repent like that? When is the last time you said you were sorry and truly meant it? When you did apologize, what words did you use? If you said but, if you added caveat, your apology was worldly sorrow. It was for you, not the one you hurt. When you do this, you rob yourself of true grace. Look at the response God has for those who will repent without caveat. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, he, he, he starts his, his speech that he's rehearsed. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And immediately they began to celebrate. The son can't even get his speech out before the father tackles him with hugs and kisses. He immediately restores him to the status of son with the robe, the ring, the shoes, and the feast. You're not just human again, you are whole again. This is the father's heart toward any person who would come to their senses, turn from their godless pursuit of self-discovery, and come home. What is so beautiful about Henri Nouwen's book is how he reflects on Luke 15 through Rembrandt's 17th century painting. I don't know if you've ever seen this painting. Rembrandt painted the return of the prodigal son at the very end of his life. And if you look at Rembrandt's life, he lived a very prodigal youth. Okay, one that ultimately cost him everything. Okay, and so I don't have much time, but I want to share a few of Nawan's reflection, his well-informed observation. He studied Rembrandt. He sought counsel from people that knew art well. I want to talk through some of his observations. I think we have a picture of, do you have a picture of that painting? Yeah. Okay, so there's the painting on the left. And I want to kind of zoom in on a series of moments things that no one reflects on. If you look at this picture, the father appears to be nearly blind. 
Now Rembrandt, for whatever reason, loved to paint blind people. He was fascinated with what he called their inner beauty. The blindness of the father means he must see his son with his hands. No one says it seems that the hands that touch the back of the returning son are the instruments of the father's inner eye. Look at the hands resting on the son. We have that. Get those hands. Notice the difference between the left hand and the right hand. The left hand shows the strength of a masculine father heart of God. And if you notice, that hand parallels the son's right foot, which is still, it's worn, but it's still dressed in its sandal. This left hand reinforces the hope of strength, that restoration is possible. He's saying, I can redeem everything. If you look at the father's right hand, you'll notice that it's far less rigid. It is much softer. It is much more like the feminine mother heart of God. It caresses and comforts. It parallels the son's bare, wounded left foot. This hand promises healing. Then let's look at the father's cloak. The father's cloak simultaneously symbolizes sort of a tent of refuge and the wings of a mother bird embracing its child. The father's bosom embraces the bare head of his son. Look at the son's head. Like a prisoner, a war refugee, a survivor of a concentration camp, but also like the wet head of a newborn baby who needs to be reborn and rebaptized through the water and blood of his mother's womb. It's beautiful. And so to all the younger brothers and sisters this morning, Come home, dear one. Let today be the day. Do not reject the feast of the Father's embrace. Jesus' listeners are standing there, awestruck, and thinking, surely this is the end of the story. But it's not. There's another brother, and this other brother is also lost, but in a way that is much harder to see. Now, his older son was in the field 
And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. Now, I must have heard this parable a hundred times growing up, okay? I'm a church brat. I might as well have been like born in the first pew of my Baptist church, right? Like just in church my whole life, like Sunday school and Awana and the whole deal. So Luke 15, prodigal son, billion times. But it wasn't until I read Tim Keller's book, Particle God, that anyone explained the second half of this parable to me. See, I didn't really relate to the younger brother when I was a kid. I was much more and still am much more of a rule follower. I actually envied younger brothers. They had such dramatic stories of conversion, right? They had made a mess of their life. It was so obvious. They had walked away and rebelled and squandered their life. And then they come back, right? And they're, they're warmly embraced by God and the church. And I would think, what about me? I mean, I, I kind of always thought that the elder brother in this story got the raw end of the deal, right? Like, shouldn't he be rewarded for his good behavior and life of faithfulness? His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look. The tone and spirit of this word is, look you. These many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice his disownment, of both his brother and father here. This son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. See, his anger isn't just envy. It isn't just a desire for reward. In Jewish law, when a father died, the eldest son was granted two-thirds of the estate. And the younger brother one-third. When the younger brother left, all that was left after the property and the wealth were divided, all that was left was the elder brother's portion. Okay, so what will happen now, now that the son has been restored back to the family, what will happen when the father actually dies? Well, by law, it will be split again. This is a very important detail. In the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, there is no real loss to the owner, right? They're lost, but then they're both fully restored to the owner. That is not the case here. Who will pay the price for the younger brother's sins? The elder brother. The Pharisees would have seethed with anger hearing this. They knew exactly what Jesus was doing. They knew that Jesus was coming for them. You see, while it appeared in the story, on the outside, like the brother, the elder brother, lived opposite his younger sibling, he actually was just like him. He too, like the younger brother, 
wanted the father's things and not the father himself. Catch that? They both wanted the father's things and not the father. Tim Keller tells his own parable to help illustrate this. I love this. I love it and I hate it. He says, once upon a time, there was a gardener who who grew an enormous carrot. So he took it to his king and said, my Lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as he turned to go to the king, said, wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give it to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. And the gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all this. And he said, my, if that is what you get for a carrot, what if you gave the king something better? So the next day, the nobleman came before the king and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, my Lord, I breed horses and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, thank you, and took the horse and merely dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. As long as I live, I will never forget the moment I first read these words as a 28-year-old pastor. They pierced me. For the first time, I saw myself for the Pharisee that I was. It wrecked me. I saw myself. I saw all my good behavior. I saw all my righteousness, my pursuit of holiness for what it was a desire to control God, to place him in my debt, to place myself in a position of power and entitlement. God, look what I've done for you. You owe me. It wrecked me. I felt lost. What was I to do? I realized I had spent my entire life giving myself the horse. Thankfully, Pastor Keller was there to guide me. He said this, what must we do then to be saved? To find God, we must repent of the things we have done wrong. But if that is all you do, you remain just an elder brother. To truly become Christians, we must also repent of the reasons we ever did anything right. Pharisees only repent of their sins, but Christians repent for the very roots of their righteousness too. We must learn how to repent of the sin under all our other sins and under all our righteousness, the sin of seeking to be our own Savior and Lord. We must admit that we've put our ultimate hope and trust in things other than God and that in both our wrongdoing and rightdoing, we have been seeking to get around God or get control of God in order to get hold of those things. The elder son is mistaken about how inheritance works in his family. 
The inheritance has nothing to do with performance or obedience, only gracious, unmerited favor. By his grace, the father goes out to meet and embrace his younger son and also goes out to meet his elder son who will not come into the feast, imploring him not to miss the feast for himself. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. Look, you're my son. You're you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting. And you, you almost imagine him saying, wasn't it fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother? He reminds him, this is your brother. He was dead and is alive. He was lost and, his, and is found. Are you like this elder brother? Here's how you know. You'll know you're like him if you find yourself angry, and feeling entitled toward God when things don't go your way. And there is always something, is there not? Isn't there always something not going your way? And you say, God, how dare you? You've abandoned me. Or perhaps you aren't angry with God or you don't know you're angry with God or you're, you're, you're unable to admit you're angry with God. But you know you're angry with other people. Who are you judging right now? Who are you standing over and saying, I can't stand people like that? Elder brothers and sisters, we too can repent today. Come inside the party. Enjoy the food and the wine. Dance and sing. By yourself because you can't hang out with anybody except people in your family. Do not reject the feast of the Father's embraced. He has it for you too. Now there's one important question left unanswered and then I promise to be done soon. Why didn't the Father go looking for the Son like the shepherd went looking for the sheep And the woman went searching for the coin. The crowd actually knew exactly who should have gone. And it wasn't the father, but instead the elder brother. See, if the elder brother had been truly righteous, if he had truly loved the father, then he would have said this, Father, my younger, son, younger brother has been a fool and now his life is in ruins, but I will go and look for him and bring him home. And if the inheritance is gone, as I expect it will be, I will bring him back into the family at my expense. Okay, it would have come from the generosity of the elder brother. Tim Keller explains. He says, Jesus does not Put a true elder brother in the story, one who is willing to pay any cost to seek and save that which is lost. It is heartbreaking. The younger son gets a Pharisee for a brother instead, but we do not. 
By putting a flawed elder brother in the story, Jesus is inviting us to imagine and yearn for a true one. And we have him. We have him. Jesus is that. And so in one story, we see God perfectly representing himself in both the brothers and in the father. Okay, Keller even names his book Prodigal God because it is actually the father who is prodigal in this story. He is the one who is recklessly spendthrift, giving all he has to his children. It is Jesus who left his home to spend his inheritance, not because of rebellion, like the younger brother, but actually out of obedience to the father. He left heaven and came to this far away country. And then like a true elder brother, found us and brought us back to a father who is ready to receive us, placing his hand on us to embrace us. And so if we can find the courage and the humility to admit that we are lost, both as younger brothers and as older brothers, this will become great news to us. In one little parable, this is why this is desert island for me, because in one little parable, you will find all that you need to know about who God is and what he came to do, that he is motivated only out of his great love for us, not because of anything we could ever do or will do to obey him. And so now, if we can receive this unto ourselves, because of Jesus, we can all come together in this new community, this experiment called the church. And we too can identify with both brothers and the father as well, to admit that we have squandered everything we've been given, to be rescued ourselves, to then become true elder brothers ourselves, to go out into the streets, to find other lost sons, younger brothers and sisters, pleading with them, do not reject the feast of the father's embrace and say to them, the experiment works. It is painful. The light is painful. The darkness in me is painful. We are messy. It is dangerous, but it is exciting. And when those people finally come through our doors, Lord willing, if there ever are our doors again for them to come through, we can also model the love of the Father, placing our hands on them, welcoming, welcoming them in, saying, I too have felt those hands on my shoulders. Let's come and take this risk together to build a new home in the Father's house. That is the great call and mission of the church of God's people. Let me pray and thank God for his goodness. Jesus, we worship you this morning. I wish I could just freaking tackle and hug every person in the church right now as we worship together. It kills me that I can't touch them right now because this is good news. All of us are sinners. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. And yet by your stripes, by your wounds, we have been healed. You, the great shepherd, have come and you have found us. 
brought us back into the fold. So we thank you and we worship you, God. Holy Spirit, I pray for the younger brothers and sisters and I pray for the elder brothers and sisters and I pray that all of us would repent today and we would come in and feast, feast on your grace. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.